And we are live. I love it. All right. Welcome to On Democracy with FP Wellman. I'm calling. If you're listening to us on the web, I hope you'll download the call and app. Join us live to talk about our democracy and the moment we face in time. It's free to download and subscribe. All of our shows publish on Apple and Spotify as well. So I hope you'll join us wherever you get your podcast fix. Tell your friends to subscribe as well. And let's get the show rolling. call in oh man welcome happy hump day uh you know I, i'm your host fred wellman uh f wellman on the web everywhere so glad to have you here for the show this is on democracy with fp wellman and i'm glad to have you so january 6th committee meets tomorrow for the eighth time uh tomorrow's heel up here will be led by adam kinzinger and elaine maria and we'll focus on donald trump's activities on january 6th now chairman benny johnson has tested positive for covid but uh, being the trooper he is he told the committee to carry on their important work now, it should be fascinating here, especially in a lot of this week's revelations, the Secret Service somehow managed to delete all the text messages from their devices from January 5th to 6th. I actually have a hard time getting that sentence out, Kevin. Um, their excuse is that they were lost in a device migration. Now, uh, keep in mind that the Secret Service is our lead agency in investigating <laughs> cyber crimes and forensics, but somehow lost the message from possibly the most important two days for their agency's history in this century. So, you know, I'm not one for conspiracy theories, but Jesus, you have to really suspend disbelief on this one. And uh, it's hard. Uh, I'm not, you know, on top of that, Tony Ornato, who, uh, Ornato, who was an agent, was promoted to a political job as an advisor to the president. And apparently that was as a detailed job. So he was still a Secret Service employee. And then he was, uh, he went back to the Secret Service. And now he's in charge of training every agent uh, in the next administration. It, it is just unprecedented, which is a word we use a lot, but here we are. Uh, but, you know, overnight, you know, the GOP nominated yet more extremists, uh, this time up in Maryland, where the nominees for governor and attorney general, uh, attorney general are avowed big lie proponents, Trump acolytes, militia fans, the works. And, of course, this occurs as Doug Mastriano over in Pennsylvania is deleting old videos of his online uh, history to try and cover his most insane statements and make him more palatable as a nominee for governor. You know, and all of it points to a GOP that isn't backing off on its rush to the authoritarian Deadpool. Now, I caught a fascinating Substack post on Twitter this week from a historian on why he's using the term fascism to describe this movement, and we all should too. Uh, now, you guys know I use the F word a lot, uh, and, uh, but this word's fascism. So I reached out immediately uh, to invite him uh, on the show. Uh, by the way, if you're on the show on call and you can see the links in the in the show uh, on the show page, we've got links to both the essay and, and Dr. Horn's legacy. So Dr. William Horn joins us today. Uh, Dr. Horn is a teacher, writer, speaker, editor, and historian of racial capitalism and black liberation. He's the co-founder and editor of the, the Activist History Review and an Arthur J. Ennis postdoctoral fellow at Villanova University, which is a great school. His research focuses on how elites and white supremacists use the state to create or recreate racial inequality. His work to understand how this process works and how to overthrow it led him to examine three substantial and interrelated areas of systemic power, policing and incarceration, food production, distribution, and state institutions like schools and hospitals. 
And that work has led him to examine the lurch towards fascism and its precedence in history. And well, that's why he's here today. So, Will, I'm so excited to have you on the show and appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great, man. So, so much to talk about. Um, you know, your essay really caught my attention right away, as many have been sounding alarm that this is a movement toward actual fascism. You know, maybe we should start off by defining what is fascism in, in a proper way, right? I mean, I think the work is thrown around a lot. Uh, we use it on the internet. People attack us. I mean, I think Mussolini himself kind of laid it out for us, the founder of the movement, right? So can you walk us through, you know, how do we define fascism? Sure. Yeah. And, and you're exactly right. Mussolini defines this for us. And so, you know, if you want to pull up my article at some point, you can just click on the link to uh, yep. essay the doctrine of fascism. I mean, it's, it's right there. And it, there are, you know, just uh, scores of eerie similarities between what Mussolini describes um, and the movement that we see in today's uh, Republican Party. But there's a few sort of key features that make um, a fascist movement a fascist movement. Um, and so the first is that there's sort of an emphasis on nostalgia and an emphasis on sort of a loss of, of mythological power. So in other words, it's, it's like, um, you know, kind of like a fairy tale version of the past. So if you think about, let's say, I don't know, George Washington and a cherry tree or something like that. Like right. This is a version of history, right, that, uh, that fascists deploy to, you know, to think about the past as being some kind of better place. And in our country, that also means like a substantially wider place. Um, and I think that it's no accident, right, that, uh, that right. we see sort of overt white supremacist movements, um, you know, hearkening to this sort of imagined um, white, happy past. Um, and so that's the first piece. Um, the second piece, uh, which is one that I do talk about uh, a good bit in the essay, is uh, sort of the role of, of religion. Uh, so for M Mussolini, he identifies Roman Catholicism um, as sort of a, a primary um, force that not only enables the, the fascists in Italy to, um, to, to govern, um, but also um, gives them a sense of, of identity. Um, he calls it like the special institution. Um, you know, of, of Italianness. Um, and so when we look at it from that perspective, you know, although we might not tend to think about fascist movements as being like, you know, overwhelmingly religious, um, you know, with a few exceptions, they are, you know, deeply, you know, tied to uh, religious movements, uh, whether, you know, you're looking at sort of the Hindu nationalist movement uh, in today's India, um, or whether you're looking at, you know, for example, Franco's Spain, um, sort of all across the world. Um, you know, the vast majority of these movements um, are tied to some sort of uh, religious and corresponding ethnic identity. Um, and so it, these are backward looking movements, in other words, they're looking right. back for the way that the world should be. Um, they're also, you know, religious movements, they're using religious institutions to um, sort of uh, create um, you know, a, a tool to help create this sort of backward looking and backward moving, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, movement. And the last piece is that they are um, eliminationist um, in nature, which is a big word. Um, but really, uh, what we're talking about there is that um, these movements uh, are designed to eradicate any sort of opposition, you know. And so there's a few points in the essay, for instance, like where I talk about how uh, Mussolini rejects the idea of individualism and individuals as being able to exist like apart from the state. And so what he means by this um, is that if you, you know, in your sort of individual ideas and identity and, and whatnot, if you sort of reject, let's say, the, the Catholic Church or Mussolini's 
I don't know, whatever policy he's proposing, or Mussolini himself um, as a fascist dictator. Um, there's no room for you um, in the Italian state. Um, and, right. it, you know, for sort of drawing parallels or making connections then, um, you know, we have here in the U.S., um, you know, a, a Republican Party that is increasingly referring to the Democratic Party as groomers, right? Um, they're right. increasingly referring to uh, Democratic, you know, election victories as like impossible, as intrinsically illegitimate, you know? And so what we have here, like, and those are two examples, and we can just go, you know, kind of across the board with these. Um, but, you know, what we have there in this Republican movement, then uh, this particular Republican iteration of fascism um, is one that, again, is trying to eliminate any kind of dissent, any kind of um, other opinion, other voices, other ideas. And so, you know, if we're putting that in Mussolini's terms, this is eliminating room for the individual. Um, and so these are sort of the three, like, major pieces of, of what makes a fascist movement. And, again, we can see all of these pieces at work, sadly, uh, in today's Republican Party. Well, it starts right with uh, MAGA, right? Make America Great Again, and, and uh, which sure. when that term came out in 2015, the big question a lot of us had, like, well, what, what's... When was it great? <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, you pick that time. And, and it always seems to be this 1950s idyllic, you know, the women were home cooking and barefoot and pregnant and black people, quote, and I, I quote, knew their place, right? Which, of course, you know, is this Jim Crow era, right? So that's the era you studied, but you really do get right to it right there. And then, of course, the elimination of sport. You know, I see that I've been in an ongoing fight on the Internet, which is sort of my life. Uh <laughs> about Ron De the rise of Ron DeSantis and DeSantis mm -hmm. as a proto-fascist. Um, yeah. And, and I, I like to highlight what you just said, the, the Disney fight. He, he, you know, he, they had the Don't Say Gay bill. Um, when Disney even offered the most mild of criticism, he evoked a, a, a he used state power to, to punish them, uh, right. passing laws quickly and stuff. So that I've been saying quite often that that's a, for me, that's a key to the fascist movement, that using the state power just to quash dissent is is that a, is that a way to put it or that sounds like it's right in line yeah I, I think that's exactly right and so this isn't like a a movement of like individual bad actors or individual bad apples or you know whatever term you want right. to use, although there are plenty of them right um but this is in fact um you know a a larger movement with a coherent set of goals um and while you know republican party policy might seem sort of scattershot or weird or random um to them, these, you know, movements that they're supporting, whether it's the Don't Say Gay, um, you know, movement, whether we're looking at um, sort of attacking teachers and school boards as another iteration of this, these are all examples of this sort of uh, eliminationist logic uh, and this eliminationist organizing, because this is exactly what it is. This is about using state violence to suppress any kind of dissent um, and to sort of create essentially what we're seeing uh, it looks like in Florida, in Texas, and some of these other places who, that have passed uh, these kinds of laws at the state level, which is, uh, you know, a single party state. Right. And that's and that single party is consolidating their power through, um, you know, manipulating the voting laws, uh, manipulating the education systems. Uh, you know, one thing I, you know, it, it goes to and, and, and what role does and we didn't play. Yeah, I think I, I want to, you know, what role does the education play in this? I mean, we, we know that, for example, Hitler said, you know, that we, you know, we have to tear Mussolini. Said, it was very Mussolini was very aggressive 
in ensuring that um, fascist ideology is being taught in schools. Um, we've seen uh, the craziest things where um, uh, Mary Miller, I believe, that on January 5th said that Hitler had it right, that we have to get the youth, <laughs> you know, um, which is a scary thing for a U.S. congressman to say. Uh, but we are seeing right. uh, in America this movement of, um, you know, they're, they're trying to manipulate the education system to, 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 to whitewash history. Um, does education play a role in this? And have you seen that in your historic, and was that part of the Jim Crow era? But how does education play a role in this fascist movement? Yeah, that's, that's such an important question. Um, you know, and I guess it, it's twofold. On the one hand, you know, as, um, you know, fascists have historically done, they've sort of, uh, embedded their, their fascist ideology in, um, you know, people who are, you know, very informative at, at a younger right. age, right? Um, and so this is an easily targeted population. And of course, because all of these people are in school, right? Um, you know, we're talking about, you know, taking over systems of education. And, and so this is, in, in many respects, what we are seeing um, in the, the larger, like, anti-CRT uh, movement. But this is also, you know, a historical thing that we've seen um, in the U.S. And so W.E.B. Du Bois, for instance, um, who's uh, sort of a, a famous black intellectual um, in, uh, in the 1930s, writes about uh, the propaganda of history. Um, and what he claims, you know, and he sort of spells this out with examples, um, is that there is this massive whitewashing project um, in America's schools, um, and that that massive whitewashing project um, is tied to a system of violence and a system of power um, that today we know is Jim Crow. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the examples that he, that he gives are, um, you know, sort of a textbook rewriting campaign that was led by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. These are, this is the same group um, that put up all of the statues that we, like, for some reason call Confederate statues. They're not Confederate statues. They're, you know, old, angry white women statues. They were erected <laughs> by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, you know, like 30, 40 years after the Confederacy collapsed um, under right. the weight of its, you know, oppressive and shitty system. Um, you know, and so... It, it, we see examples of this in our own history, um, right? And, and another sort of, like, way to think about this is that, like, when, when we see the massive, like, civil rights protests of the 1950s and 1960s, um, we also see a corresponding push to, like, reform the uh, American education system because ultimately what fascist ideology relies on is this idea that there's some kind of, like, mythical, better past one that is like, you know, white and patriarchal, um, that the, the adherents to the movement uh, want to like, quote unquote, go back to. This is a misrepresentation of the past, of course, um, but, but it's, it's a tool, you know, it's, it's not meant to be consistent. It's not meant to be accurate. Um, it's, it's meant to be powerful. Um, and that's why they use it. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, I think that the violent undertone you had you, you said something uh, political violence you, you touched on that and of course we do remember that from you know anyone i i, I was born in 1965 i'm old but you know <laughs> and and i grew up you know i grew up in that era you know i i saw the end of it um but we look back now we see the brutal violence by police uh, against the civil rights movement um we see historically the brown shirts. We see historically Mussolini's black shirts as, as squads. Um, you know, that we see the violence in uh, Venezuela. 
uh, Chavez, you know, Chavez people, you know, I, I st- I've read, um, I'm sure you have too, Ruth Van Giet's, uh, book, Strong Men, uh, which is right. very, very good on, on laying this out. Um, we're seeing that, that, that historic presence of violence in our politics today. Um, where does that go? I mean, what are the key indicators you see that remind you of the history you've studied that we're seeing today in the violence side? A lot, yeah, right? Right. That's a question, man. Um, so I guess, <laughs> so I'm here um, for it, man. I told you I was yeah, going to ask you yeah. one thing, but now we went in a totally different direction. So welcome to the show. Uh, this is how I do it. <laughs> that's perfect. That's perfect. You trusted um, me. You screwed up. You trusted me, Will. <laughs> no, Go this, ahead. This, this is a really important question, though, and it's something that I worry about a lot because one of the things that we see, um, you know, it, in terms of, like, broad social, economic, um, and, and political status quo right now um, is – is a number of risk factors that elevate our risk for right. racist violence. Um, so just as an example, the presence of sort of like a chronic pandemic disease um, elevates the risk of racial violence substantially. Um, we have that, right? Yeah. Um, we also have like, you know, issues of instability and sort of what we would call like institutional decay, where people's faith in, in institutions, and I think, uh, you know, reasonably so to be blunt, um, is is declining. Um, and as a result, there is, again, a greater risk for racial violence. Um, we also have, at least at the moment, um, a, a scenario of, like, a pretty severe economic distress. Um, we tend not to talk about, like, in sort of our public discourse, the, uh, the inflation issue as being a hunger issue, um, right. you know, or, like, a survival issue, but, like, it obviously is. Um, and again, like, you know, in those types of situations, guess what happens? We're at, a, at an increased risk for racial violence, right? Um, you know, and we have, if we sort of like pull back the frame a little bit and think like really long term, um, you know, we are in the midst of a climate crisis, um, you know, and so we've seen massive, you know, deadly heat waves uh, recently in India, uh, now, you know, in, in England and, and elsewhere. In England, right? yeah, in 104 in degrees, yeah, 104 right. degrees in um, London, yeah. And this, again, puts, um, you know, puts us at elevated risk for racial violence. And so when I look across sort of like the, the various risk factors that we're facing right now, um, and when I think about, you know, sort of the, the history that we're looking at, too, um, you know, the history of these movements, I, I think that, you know, the situation right now is, is dire uh, because, you know, in, in historical circumstances, let's say, where we have um, an insurrection, or we have a coup attempt, or we have massive voter suppression that is not countered by the state, um, you see it, it's sort of a, a quadrupling um, of, of those efforts. Um, and, and that's what we're at risk for right now. You know, like the January 6th uh, committee hearings are, are important, you know, and, and they're, um, you know, we should all be paying attention to them. But, you know, this is, coming well after the insurrection. Um, and, like, as of now, we're seeing, like, you know, so far, almost no consequences for the people who've done the, the vast majority of organized, the most responsible people uh, for, right. for January 6th, right? It's incredibly dangerous, you know? And in previous, you know, examples, whether it's the, the Wilmington coup of 1898, uh, whether we're looking at the Liberty Place coup, you know, in, in 1874, when you let sort of the, the insurrectionists and the voter suppressionists and the coup attempters uh, and organizers walk away, um, they're going to walk back um, with another right. coup attempt. Um, and, and unfortunately, that, that's 
what we're facing right now. Yeah, as, as my friend Rick Wilson likes to say, you know, a, a coup that goes unpunished is just practice. Um, yeah. And and I think that's what keeps me. It does keep me up, and I mean, it truly has and drives my work. Is that what I why I call myself now a pro democracy advocate, which feels weird, but here we are uh, that we're in the United States, and you know, I'm a veteran of the wars in Iraq, and 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 I saw the results of what a dictator can do. I've, I've told I've, on this show before. I've told our followers and listeners about how you know I learned about democracy sitting in a mud hut in in Iraq, northern Iraq. So. It's, to see that violence, that political violence here, to see the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys uh, and this Patriot Front, um, you know, monsters uh, running free, essentially, and, and, and not even being um, subverted or even worse, subverting the power of the state. I mean, and that that leads to the next part of this, I suppose, is, you know, where does the state I mean, I, one of the things I've seen quite a bit is this constitutional sheriff's movement. Um, we've seen uh, police activity with the Oath Keepers. We know there's a large law enforcement um, streak in the Oath Keepers. Um, how, I mean, it was, is there a historic precedent in, in, in the fascist movements in, in Germany and in, in Hitler and, and Italy and others of, of a um, subversion of the legal arms as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we see that, you know, of course, in sort of fascist Europe um, with the World War I veterans. Right. The vast majority of black shirts and brown shirts were World War I veterans, um, you know, people with military training, uh, some of them like active, you know, police officers. Um, and, and we see them joining this movement and sort of spearheading this um, political violence, both like institutionally, uh, but then, you know, also as, as, as vigilantes and, and as paramilitaries. Um, and we also see this, uh, of course, at work in, in our own history. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working on a documentary right now um, that looks at um, a massacre in New Orleans uh, that was, you know, attacked a, a voting rights convention there in 1866. Um, mm -hmm. And the people who did the storming of the voting rights convention uh, were white supremacists, uh, former Confederates, all of them. But they were right. also active duty police officers and firefighters. Right. Wow. And so what we have here, you know, and, and we could just go like across the board with this. You know, we have we have a long history of paramilitary uh, organizing in the U.S., you know, and, and it, there's always sort of a, a tandem, um, you know, attribute there where you see both, um, you know, agents of the state like police or the military um, kind of working hand in hand and often uh, joining these sort of paramilitary uh, groups. Another really famous example uh, is during the, the Wilmington coup that I mentioned earlier, um, mm -hmm. one of the groups that was involved in, in shooting at uh, black Wilmingtonians um, was the, the, the local militia, what today we would call like the National Guard. Um, you know, and so again, you see like agents of state violence carrying out, you know, a clearly and explicitly uh, eliminationist uh, white supremacist, and, and in those cases, proto-fascist agenda. So when people like me get nervous about, for example, Ron DeSantis creating his election police, Right. right. Uh, which yeah. answers to him. Um, and I'm tired. I, I don't want to be accused of hyperventilating, but it does set off some warning signs for me. Uh, you know, a state, a, a new police agency um, created to pursue a lie. Uh, uh, should we worry about these kind of things where, we're, where we see consolidation of uh, law enforcement power underneath someone who's a you know, strong man, authoritarian? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you should. Um, I'm just feeding yeah. this to you, Will. Yeah. <laughs> this is like this is like the home run derby. Just kind of tossing the ball to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, as as a national fan, I, I I'll I'll celebrate that reference, right? Good. <laughs> there you go. 
Uh, but no, yeah, yeah, I mean, yes, is is the answer to that, right? And and we see, um, you know, historically in the U.S. and elsewhere, um, both paramilitary um, and explicitly, like you know, agents of state violence who are beholden to um, either, a, let's say, a member of a party um, or you know, a a member um, of of the state itself um, who has you know supports this suppressionist eliminationist agenda. These are incredibly dangerous vehicles uh, for escalation and, and increased state violence and repression. Right, and and we're seeing the starts of them. And 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 here's a question that's again off our script, but <laughs> the one thing it does strike me as so many of the people I talk to about this stuff, I say, look, you should be worried about this. Here's an indicator. Here's an indicator. Here's an indicator. And they're like, no, we're we're not doing that. We're not fascist. We're just. I'm just worried about parental choice, uh, you know, or, or, you know, no, I, I, I think we should have more. Is there, did, I think what I'm trying to get at and I'm, I'm struggling is do the people doing this know they're doing it right? I mean, did, 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 did many in the fascist movements of the past say, Oh shit, I'm a fascist. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> or did you, yeah. do you just wake up one day and say, shit, I became a fascist. I mean, <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? It's like, and how do I, how do I reach someone? Well, we, we'll get to that later. Part one, is in your studies, do people who become fascists just wake up when they say, fuck, I'm a fascist. Holy shit, how'd that happen? Um, yeah, I think it sounds a little bit more like, fuck, I'm a fascist, right? But, but yeah, <laughs> right? I, I don't think they're like particularly upset about it, you know? Um, right. People who are who are engaged in, in white supremacist violence, you know, either as agents of the state or as, you know, sort of these vigilante or paramilitary groups. Uh, yes, I mean, they know what they're doing, right? Okay. Um, and, and I think, you know, the people who are, like, Let's use a really simple, really well-known example. The people who are making the, the claims, you know, that we call the big lie, right? That the election right. is stolen. And it is astonishing. We should pause and note that Trump is actually still making phone calls to try. No to shit. Did you see that? I mean, last this is week, mind-boggling. Last week. I mean, right? Right, as he's being investigated, as he's being literally criminally investigated in Georgia yeah. for precisely this, he's yeah. still calling up legislators trying to get them to throw out the election. It's right remarkable uh, yeah but yeah yeah exactly yeah and, and i i mean i don't want to like you know sound like you know a, a broken record or, or whatever but like yeah but here we are when we don't you know hold these people accountable this is exactly the kind of thing that happens they continue to do the thing right that is dangerous right. um right and, and so i'm you know I, I think this probably surprises no one you know who is is, is a trump watcher or you know, is concerned about fascism, you know, in the U.S., uh, you know, that this is essentially an ongoing, this is not a failed coup attempt, right? This yes. is an ongoing larger attempt of which one six was like one piece or one element. Uh, but this is an ongoing issue, right? Um, and, and it's one that is not going to go away if we don't like, you know, use the F word, if we don't like name the monster who is in the room, right? Um, or if right. like hide under the covers or it's, it's just, it's not going away. Um, this is something that we have to be blunt um, about and, and deal with, um, you know, as, um, as as aggressively as possible, um, because this is a really dangerous moment. You know, if we look at Jim Crow, it's sort of a, a historical example. And I think there's a lot of parallels between today's movement, between uh, previous fascist movements and what we call the proto-fascist movement in Jim Crow. If we use that as an example, um, you know, depending upon like when we started, either the 1870s or the 1890s, um, you're looking at between a century to like 70 years um, of like a successful fascist or proto-fascist regime um, under wow. Jim Crow. 
you know, wow. and, and I mean, that completely changing the legal landscape, right? So there's no right. like legal way to overturn what they created, right? Like you can't just like vote, 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 right? Um, right. As, as much as we should be doing that, um, you know, there, there are other things that, uh, you know, other tactics that those, those actors had to use precisely because, you know, of, of the way that they changed uh, the legal landscape in the U.S. Well, that so legal landscape brings me to the Supreme Court. We haven't touched on that yet. And mm-hmm. you did mention your essay that Jim Coe, we had a reactionary Supreme Court. Uh, eventually, we were able to change that. We, we actually, we clearly have a reaction in an extremist Supreme Court now with uh, with the Roe v. Wade decision and, and Dobbs and, and then uh, uh, others. And now we have this fearful situation where they're going to take on the case of the, the state legislatures being supreme in voting elections. So what role does this, this extremist Supreme Court play in all this? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really important point. Um, so in, in the in U.S. history, um, you know, we have for the majority of our history had, you know, an, an extremist and, and reactionary um, Supreme Court. Um, and so that's led to a number of really <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting, interesting perspective. What, what, you know, I think a lot of us. I mean, it, 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 yeah. it's the case, yeah. you know, this the is majority, how we get, it is. Right. It is. this is yeah, how we get Korematsu, you know, like we have yeah. all of these terrible, the Dred Scott ruling, right? They have yeah. all these terrible yeah. rulings, um, rulings that yeah. took like, you know, a sort of a terrible situation and made them even worse, like for the people who are experiencing that terror. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and so like this is like all that new. Right. Um, and in many respects, like we should view the Warren court as like a good, you know, response to that, uh, but also as a historical outlier, you know, in terms wow. of like um, viewing the, the I, don't, I mean, like it just isn't. Let's take a, a, a an example. Like uh, so um, the Williams v. Mississippi ruling, um, it's a Supreme Court ruling from. I believe it's 1898 was when the ruling was delivered. Um, and uh, that ruling essentially negates the 15th Amendment, um, which guarantees the right to vote. And so uh, what the justices decide is that, um, you know, so long as the, the state legislatures, you know, in the Deep South and then elsewhere, um, as long as they don't use, like, explicitly racial terms when they're excluding people to vote, even like, in practice, that's exactly how it works. As long as they don't write down in the law, you know, we're targeting black Americans, they can do whatever they want. Right. Right. Um, they can exclude those people and, you know, rescind the right to vote uh, for, you know, huge swaths of their population. I mean, this is exactly what happens. Right. Um, right. And the result of that um, is that you have a system, again, where you can't simply vote your way out. You can't, like, organize your way out. Like there's there needs to be sort of like a larger movement there. And the reason is because of the court, you know. And so, I mean, we should be asking big questions about the court right now. As you note, we have another, you know, reactionary and dangerous extremist um, Supreme Court, um, as we've had before. Um, And, you know, this has led to, um, you know, previously a sabotaging of civil rights and uh, a sabotaging of multiracial democracy. Like, is the way that we've organized this, like, super good? Uh, if this keeps happening, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean in here and say maybe not, you know. Um, so we should, of course, like be asking ourselves questions about like how we respond to this particular court. But we also right. need to be asking ourselves bigger questions about you know um, the institutions that we've created. I mean, like the filibuster is another great example. Like you know we're all you know shaking our fists at the filibuster and you know uh, mansion and cinema, um, you know. But this is in, in the way it's being used here, like is an artifact of Jim Crow. Right. And there's no like 
constitutional reason that this needs to be the way that it is. Um, you right. know, this is just simply an outgrowth of the institutions that white supremacists set up for themselves. You know, it's, it's another reason why we have like the limited number of, uh, you know, representatives in the House of Representatives. This is, again, this isn't like some magical thing that's like, you know, constitutionally necessary. This is simply what the, the anti-immigration activists, you know, in the 19-teens and 20s wanted. And, and this is why we have this in, in the way that we do. Right. Wow. And, and, and how we affect it today. Of course, you know, it's always, it, it, the challenge, of course, is always what will be the second third order effects. I think you said something very key is, right? It's like, how we act today, the, the historic precedent has to guide us because it will abide us later, right? So, but maybe expand the court isn't the answer, right? Because it may solve today's problem, but it doesn't mean we won't right. have we won't have an extremist uh, thirteen member court in uh, in ten years. <laughs> sure, <laughs> you know, yeah. It, so it's very difficult. Um, so, you know, I've talked to a lot of folks about January six hearings, the January six events. You know, legal experts I've had on here. I've had communications pros, political consultants, hell, even a Hollywood screenwriter. Um, you're a historian of racist movements. You know, where do you see January 6th in its relation to historical coup attempts like the Beer Hall push, for example, and, 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 and the hearings now? Um, where, where do I see what? I'm sorry? The pers- where do you put in the perspective January 6th against oh, sure. these historic coup attempts? You know, specifically, you know, where, do, where does our – I mean, we, we talk a lot about January 6th. I, 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 as you know, I have the Beer Hall Project uh, as, a, as right. an organization I support I, – I founded, um, which does say, look, you know, Beer Hall push in 19 19- – 22 was was um was sort of yeah. our 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 version right of January 6th. It failed um in, in his trial. Hitler gained more uh, knowledge or gained more fucking fame, and and then right. he had this minor prison term. And then he decided, well, that's not the direction. I'm going to subvert the Weimar Republic institutions. Um, I, I I've been saying over and over that we face that we're in that moment. We're in the post beer hall push moment. Do you see it that way? And are there other examples that I'm missing, perhaps? Yeah, and and I think it's you know that's a good um you know, example of the type of danger that we face because we have an unsuccessful coup attempt that is, you know, sort of minimally addressed um, by the Weimar state. Um, and 10 years later, um, we have then Hitler, you know, um, and then the Nazi party um, winning elections and, and ultimately like Hitler becoming chancellor, you know. Yep. Um, and this is, this is so, you know, there, there is an election process um, right. At least the fascism, and, and we're not magical. And elections are not magical, right? I mean, there are plenty of right. dictatorships across the world that have elections, you know, like ostensibly, um, where there's everybody knows the outcome, right? Um, you know, and I think that's part of what we're seeing here uh, in the big lie that created uh, the January sixth insurrection is that we have, you know, an election process where, like, you know, multiple parties can win, right? Um, right. And that's a problem for one of the parties, um, you know, and, and so there, there's an attempt to eliminate that other possibility, right? Um, and so what we have here, though, is um, a failed but ongoing coup attempt, right? And so we can look at January 6th as one um, example of that. Uh, but we can also, uh, I think, wrap in uh, the voter suppression laws that we've seen across the country, the, the gerrymandering that we've seen, like, ramped up after the 2020 census. These are all really dangerous um, voter suppression tools, um, you know, that ultimately, you know, historically in the U.S. have led um, to a, a proto-fascist regime uh, during the Jim Crow era. There's no reason legally or, you know, institutionally um, that these tools can't be used in that way again. Uh, that's terrible. Uh, and we should, like, think of ways to prevent that from happening. Um, right. But, you know, there, it is not inevitable. 
um, that this that this attempt or series of attempts will be unsuccessful. Um, and we do see that quite clearly, uh, both in our you know our own history and you know the Wilmington coup is, is a, a great example, uh, but also obviously uh, in other countries' histories as well that, that a failed coup attempt often leads directly to a successful coup. Yeah, and and that's what you know so many of us are trying to turn back. So, I, I, and we've been talking for a while, I guess. Two, two, two that I would love to go practical for a minute if, if, if for this sure. last part of our talk, right? So practical number one is, as you know, I'm a political consultant. I do work with a couple of uh, candidates for both Congress and Senate across the country. Um, and a lot of the candidates I work with, they, they, you know, obviously they're, they're, they want to steer away from using the word fascism, right? That my opponent's a fascist or I'm facing fascism. It does turn off a lot of folks. It does build walls when you use that word. It's an aggressive word. I'm, I'm happy to use it. You know, do what? What? What do we tell those guys? What do we tell Congress? You know, candidate, congressional candidates or others who are who are trying to you know, to, to to beat this back, uh, but also have to to walk a fine line. Do you do you have any suggestions, or what's your take on that? Yeah, um, I man, that's that's an important question. You know, especially as we're thinking about how to respond uh, to right. this movement, right? Right. Um, and, and that's you know the kind of question that we should all be asking ourselves. Um, and, and whatever, you know, way that we, we approach this issue, you know, wherever we are uh, in our, like, individual circumstances. Um, I think, you know, naming the monster is really important. Um, you know, and, and clearly we have a term, you know, in fascism for this um, set of ideas and practices um, that the Republican Party is embracing. But, of course, I also understand that, like, you know, we live in different communities under different circumstances, right? You know, if you're right. a politician, you're appealing to different kinds of voters. You know, I'm from South Louisiana, but, you know, I live in Philly now. These are two very different places, you know? Right. Um, and so the way that, you know, if, if I'm trying to appeal to people that I would talk here, you know, is different than I would talk, let's say, like, back home where I'm from, you know? Um, but we, ha- we have to name the monster, you know? So if we're going to call these people, like, authoritarians, or, you know, um, insurrectionists. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, even at the congressional level, there's, you know, really good evidence for why we should use that term uh, or those terms. But we also need to explain why we're using the, those terms. I mean, that's something I try to do in the piece because, you know, again, like the, the F word is, is fraught or whatever. Right. Um, you know, and, and I understand that. As a term, it comes with a lot of baggage. Um, and I think it's also, you know, intentionally misused um, by people to sort of dilute its effect. Um, there we go. But yep. yeah, um, but, you know, like the, the main point is that we, we need to name the monster uh, because the monster isn't going away on its own. You know, and so if we're talking about, um, you know, congressional Republicans who have like participated in the big lie, who worked to, you know, overturn the 2020 election, who have then blocked every, you know, investigation into uh, what happened after January 6th, uh, but people who have also been pursuing really repressive policies, we can explain what that means, you know? And so if we want to use the word um, authoritarians or, or extremists, um, th- those are fine words. Um, I think the most important thing, though, and I think that people really are receptive to, um, is just explaining what we mean by those terms, because people, they don't want this uncertainty. They, they don't want to be afraid, right? Um, and, and we're not scaremongering when we use terms like that because we're explaining, you know, we're explaining the world as it exists, uh, which is unfortunate, but it allows us then an opportunity to take action and, and to make a change. Um, and that's something that I think, um, you know, as, as a speaker and, and as an educator, um, I've found that, that people are really receptive to. 
That's really helpful. Now, and the final practical question too is, you know, the, the question I get often from followers and listeners on the show and then on, on Twitter especially are, you know, what can they do to fight back? You know, so many of us feel helpless against this movement this time. You started the civil rights era and it's a fight against Jim Crow. Can you lay out some practical steps maybe for folks to take you know, and, and, and do their part to, you know, in their community uh, to, to yeah. push back against this movement? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and thank you for that. Yeah. So the, um, I think the first thing we need to tell ourselves, like as we're thinking about what we should do and when we should do it, um, okay. is to think about like the, the timing issue, right? Like we are running out of time um, to, to address um, this movement. And as sort of as, as at the state level, but then also like federally with the Supreme Court and um, hopefully not, but possibly, you know, if we, if we see uh, in the near future a far-right uh, Congress, um, we need to understand that those institutions control the state. They control our laws. They control how our laws are applied. So waiting becomes very dangerous, right? Uh, waiting to act is, is, is a risk. It's a risk that you're taking, like, for yourself um, and, and for people around you, you know? And so, like, just understanding that risk is, I think, really important. Um, and, and I think that also then uh, can help us guide our actions. Um, so the most important thing I think we can do, and obviously, like, you know, I'm recommending all of these, like, with a dose of, I, I guess, like, use your common sense, you know? Right. Um, do, do what seems reasonable, right? So, like, my response in Philadelphia would be very different, say, than my response, you know, in sort of the far right area that I lived in. Uh, when I last lived in Louisiana, right? Like these are different responses and that's okay, right? But, you know, find a way, you know, to talk to other members of your community who you think are open to having conversations, figure out like what their needs are, right? Um, and if there's ways that you can like, you know, help meet each other's needs, if there's, you know, let's say like an emergency, right? Um, that's yep. sort of step number one. That, that's when, when people use the word organizing, that's, kind of what organizing really is, right? Um, step number two is finding a way to pressure institutions. Um, obviously, we do that by voting. Please vote. Like, these aren't, like, mutually exclusive. Uh, you can vote and also go protest or, you know, nag people or, you know, be weird in a restaurant. You know, you do you. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, but, but it's, it's important that we do, that we pressure um, our institutions because our institutions, despite what we you know, maybe um, learned in Schoolhouse Rock, they don't, like, really represent us, you know, like the vast majority um, of people in, in Congress, even people who are maybe, like, trying to do good things are pretty wealthy and fairly disconnected from the rest of us, right? Um, right. And, and, and we need to make sure that they're representing our interests, you know, and it's okay. Uh, even to pressure, you know, politicians who you sort of consider, like, on your side or on the right side or whatever, that's that's good, and we should do that, right? Right. Um, so that's, that's, I guess, step number number two or number two point five, if, if you're okay. um, if you're keeping track. Um, and then the last thing um, is that we need to, you know, think about um, sort of larger scale, like how do we sort of reform longer term um, these institutions? And so, like I used the example of the Supreme Court, which has just a terrible history. Um, you know, like we need to be thinking outside the box. You know, like is how do we fix something like this? Can we fix something like this? Or, you know, is it something where we need to either start over from scratch or, or do something radically different, you know? And these are conversations that, that we can have, you know? And 
of course, like we don't know like where they're going to lead, um, but that's okay, right? Like the important thing is that we're having them. And so like if there's, you know, um, I think it was uh, the philosopher like uh, on Twitter, the philosopher Olafeni Tewao was like sort of joking that we probably shouldn't wait until there's like a fascism announcement um, to right. start organizing, you know? Um, right. And so, you know, if there, let's say there, hypothetically, there is a fascism announcement, right? Then we're, <laughs> we're organized, you know, and we're already working together um, and we're already doing the things that we need to be doing. Um, so, you know, like obviously donate where you can, identify resources, time, you know, abilities that you have. We all have these things in various ways um, and we can generate change, you know, at the local level. That's something that we see um, happening, you know, in the civil rights movement across like various organizations. And that's something that we can replicate here um, to, to keep this from, from getting, you know, from going to, from bad to worse. That's really, those are great. And, and, and it's funny how often I have that. And I've asked this question of others. Uh, I can't tell you how often the first one is always um, we have to rebuild that sense of community, that we have to find the places where we connect still as Americans uh, at the level. And that is, you're right, taking care of others. It's, it is being neighborly. It is, um, you know, lower the barriers. And, I, I, and, and, and circling back to something you said earlier that does play right into that. Um, the role of the pandemic and all that, right? So we had a a physical effort, a physical uh, moment that forced us apart physically. Um, and then we came out of that just in time for a rise of this fascist movement, if you will, um, and a divided politic. And it feels like sometimes we just haven't gone back. I mean, I, I think in the neighborhood I live in now, suburban America, um, there was always these roving suburban parties in the back, somebody's back deck, right? And, 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 that just simply hasn't come back. Um, and part of it is, um, you know, I, I've talked to people in the neighborhood who have similar political interests that, that I do saying, I just can't hang out with them. <laughs> you know I mean? They're yeah. like, they're, they're not, you know, they just won't go. Be, it's not, they're not happening. And then if they did, people are like, I don't want to hang out and have a beer with a guy who's going to tell me that, you know, uh, you know, all this CRT shit. Right. And so right. Um, it, it is interesting precedent. You know, we had a depression. We had, there's always this been this era um, that you mentioned historically in the, in the earlier part of our conversation that leads to these moments and, and how they play into it. It really is a fascinating uh, precedent that um, we do have to fight to fix. So, so Will, we've talked for a while. It's been great. Any things I missed or anything, any last points you want to, you, you think I, I didn't touch on well enough for you? I think you've made a great case for, for where you stand and, 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 and the basis of your essay. Yeah, no, I, thank you. I appreciate the, the conversation, the questions, uh, especially the, the sort of, um, you know, the, 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 the more spur of the moment ones, I think, I think it's all, those are really exciting and, and productive and, and fun. Um, and I guess, yeah, I just, I want to like reemphasize, you know, we, we can and, and maybe should use the F word, but we definitely should be naming the monster. Um, and then we can also, you know, take steps once we've identified the monster um, to, to make sure that the monster doesn't, um, you know, win at the end of the movie. That's terrific. Now, uh, uh, I, I did post your, your bio and uh, your, your Substack and the, and the comments here, but for people who are listening on Apple and Spotify, um, where can they find you online? Where can they, can they uh, find your writings and, uh, and your work? Sure, yeah. Um, so I edit the Activist History Review, um, and so that's at activisthistory.com. Uh, the Substack is called In Case of Emergency, um, and so you can find me uh, there, um, I think it is an emergency. <laughs> so it is um, indeed. And uh, and then I'm uh, on Twitter um, at w i h o r n e. Um, and yeah, I, I you know love to you know hear from people and, and all of that good stuff. 
Um, and so, you know, I'm, I would be glad to talk about this, you know, more with anyone who's interested. Wonderful. And of course, uh, this has been a great conversation. Well, thank you so much. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at FP Wellman. Uh, I've also got an official Instagram and Facebook page cleverly called FP Wellman Official because I'm an originalist. Um, I'd love you to follow our work f- fighting. You know, I got, that's what I do, man. You can hard to believe I'm a communications professional. Uh, but you know, I love I love folks to follow our work. The Beer Hall Project. Uh, we talked about it a little bit on this episode of the podcast at Beer Hall Project and BeerHallProject.com. And and I'll talk to you offline, Will, because we have some interesting work coming along that lines. You know, we're we're looking very closely at how we get America to start talking to each other. How do we prevent the rise of fascism by making sure we build our communities again? I, I hope people will follow Beer Hall Project. To, as we roll that out this fall. I'm terribly excited about that work. Uh, we're doing some very cool stuff. As always, you can find this podcast on Apple and Spotify uh, and live right here, live right here on Call In. Tell your friends if you like the show. I hope you'll give us a great review. And that's our show for this week. Thanks, everyone, for coming. We'll be back again next Wednesday. Uh, Will, thanks for joining us. Enjoy your week. Uh, school's coming up again, and I, I, I wish you good luck in the new school year and, uh, and continue the great work you're doing for our country. Uh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate uh, the, the conversation, and I, I look forward to more. All right. That's all our show. So thanks for joining us, folks.